Welcome back, everybody, to another Vince August podcast. Coming to you from Simple Studios today, um, I have three very special guests on a podcast that I feel is very necessary, uh, especially at this time with the climate that we have in the country. Um, my guests are Troy Cannonier, who's a friend of mine, uh, that we've worked stand up together, um, and someone I consider a friend and not just somebody in the business. Uh, Karen Shockness, who I've also worked stand up. She has a lot of insight and some background to shed on this based on her, uh, work experience. And joining me via Skype, who's at a little bit of a disadvantage because he's not here, is Jawan Nelson, someone else I know through comedy. Um, but, you know, everyone that's in this conversation right now has shown me through social media to have a very strong opinion. And a lot of people on Facebook and Twitter are being really careful about going around the subject, not really talking about the subject. And that was the reason I wanted to have this. And I want to start this off by saying to everybody here, first of all, thank you for being here. Thanks for having us. Um, and, and I want everyone to get into their background. For, for everyone that knows me and knows the podcast, and for the new people listening that are fans of Troy, Karen, and Jerwan, uh, by way of background, not only am I a comedian, but I was a criminal defense attorney for the better part of 11 years before I was appointed municipal court judge. I was a judge for six years. Um, the Supreme Court of New Jersey gave me an ultimatum. I couldn't do both jobs. I gave up my judge position, and now I am back working as a criminal defense attorney. I also do personal injury litigation. So I'm very much involved in the legal system. Troy, give me some of your background so everybody knows who you are. Um, born and raised in New York City. I'm a black man who's a veteran who served this country uh, in the Army and the military. Got a chance to do a lot of coaching as far as what basketball is concerned and doing social work as far as being in Korea and trying to teach people how to speak English really opened up my eyes to just the human condition within itself. And as I said, being a black man in America, I have to deal with this every day. And a parent. Yeah, and, and a parent, and a parent. And yeah, a parent. I have an 18-month-old new little girl. So this is something that I'm really concerned with because the world that we leave her, she has to be able to survive in. It's, it's scary right now. It really is. Karen, give us some of your background. And you don't have to name the school if you're worried about that, but just give us your background <laughs> in education. Okay. I am a recently retired school social worker. I have been a clinical licensed social worker for the past over 26 years. I... um. Outside of being retired now, and I am a licensed clinical psychotherapist. Um, I worked in the elementary schools and the junior high schools and the high schools. For the 26 years, I remained at one school, elementary school, which is now converted from strictly elementary to elementary junior high school. And I am a single parent of a young son. Well, if you want to call 26 young, but I'm concerned. And I am a black parent. I am a black single parent mother of a 26-year-old son that I'm very With, concerned Without about. naming the school, can you give us the, the area? Okay. I have worked for 26 years in the urban, in East Harlem and Harlem. Okay. Very important. Okay. And Jawan, please uh, give us your background. I'm a network engineer. Um, I grew up in Patterson, New Jersey. I was also raised in Raleigh, North Carolina. I'm a professional comedian. I spend most of my time uh, actually as a volunteer youth mentor in a program that I created. I live upstate New York, um, so there isn't really an inner city unless you're dealing with Syracuse and Rochester. Um, I work in Rochester, where being black 
on, on a daily basis is a major issue. Um, so that's basically my background. I can't think of three better people to have on a podcast. I have to be honest. And there was one other person that I invited to be on this podcast um, who is a friend of mine who is in the, the industry as well. And he's white. And one of the things he would have brought to this is he made his way through the criminal justice system as an inmate. And he could have shined okay. some light <laughs> okay. from that perspective. You know what's funny? And, and this was part of the conversation that happened last night at Stand Up New York. When I was talking to people about this podcast, and this is the thing that was I found really disturbing, is I was told, what do you think you're going to accomplish? And do you think you're going to win? And I said, win what? And he said, well, you know, what, what is it exactly that you're debating? And I said, no, no, let me make a couple things clear. And I want to make this clear to everybody listening to this. This is not a debate. Right, I am right, not. We right. are not here to debate. Right. We are here to have the one thing that nobody wants to have, which is a conversation. And the reason I think people are afraid to have a conversation is because of that mentality that I faced last night, which is. You know what? Someone's going to segment one thing that you say, and you're going to have a one-hour podcast, but they're going to hear one sentence, and you will forever be defined by that one sentence. And it's happening right now to the mayor of Baltimore. From both sides, we hear I hear black people upset with her because she used the word thug, which... At some point, there was a meeting over the last couple months where Thug became the new N-word. I missed the meeting. I didn't realize that. that I, I didn't get it either. I should have got my call. Uh, Jawan, know. is that something that you've noticed, too, that Thug has become the new N-word? Um, I did. I did. I thought it was interesting a couple months ago when uh, the federal government and the Army had decided for three days that they would embrace the word Negro. And... I was like, why this this need to to label anything further than it's been labeled? Right, and and um, yeah, I noticed that thug has become this new label, and it's unfortunate because it's become it's it, it's 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 racial now. I mean, it, it 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 points to black youth more than it points to any other race. And and I don't understand how or why that happened, and and I wonder how much of that is the media trying to play in and, and get a new buzzword that isn't as offensive as the N-word, but yet will send that message and give that connotation. But th this is part of the reason why we can't have conversations, because here's this mayor who I think has done so far a pretty good job under the circumstances, uh, Stephanie Rawlings-Blake, but she's getting heat from the black community. And then she gets heat from the white community that says you did nothing to stop these riots when you said give them space. She's in a no-win situation. And this is what we do. We segment out. And listen, they did it to President Barack Obama. They don't, yeah, they've been doing it to Barack. They've been doing it to Barack. Yeah, well, the funny thing is I just came from Baltimore yesterday. I actually went down there. You see the stuff that you see on CNN. And I wanted to see for myself. And I was actually on the corner right across the street from where the CVS was actually burned down. I was there on that corner. I saw the police out there with my own eyes. They were in full riot gear, like they were ready for something to happen. And you could just feel the tension in the air, like you could cut it with a chainsaw. It's like, all right, we waiting for y'all to act up. Come on, thugs. Come on, N-words. Let's go. We ready. And nothing happened as of yet. And I got a chance to talk to the people, and they've all said the same thing. This is a generational 
This is a generational way of living. This has been going on for generations and generations. This isn't something new. It's just a new deal because of the fact that the media and the national media is paying attention to it. My thing is this. What's your excuse for this black man's back, 80% of it to be broken after he was arrested? I don't care what he did prior. 80% of his back was destroyed. There has to be something that has to be done. See, what you're doing, Vince, is like we've spoken before. You're the anomaly in all of this. You see it for what it is, and a conversation is free. Right. But it's also scary. It is. Because once we get past the BS and we like dealing one-on-one human beings, that's when people start to really get, oh, my God, wait a minute. Let me find out this person breathes air like I do. Well, you know what? I want to hear, I want to hear from Juwan. Juwan, pl- tell me, and, and I know you've been very outspoken on social media. Tell me how you see the police issue right now as it relates to, let, let's make it specific, black society. Oh man, I mean, that's a tough question because the thing that I, I don't want to do is say, okay, well, here's the issue. I think we all kind of know what the issue is. Um, it's, it's a systemic issue, but it's been there for 400 years. It might have been there longer. The question is, how do we fix the issue? And when it comes to police and black interaction, I think the issue is, is trust. Neither side has a reason to trust the other side. Right. Sides look at each other and they go, well, that side is incompetent. That side can't be trusted. You know, that side isn't clean. That side doesn't have my best interest at heart. It's interesting you say that, Juwan, because, you know, one of the things, and listen, I'm a a white man coming in this, and although I do criminal defense work, and although I'm involved in the judicial system, I'm going to tell you something right now. When I looked at this, and I tried to look at this as clear as I could, and coming in as as a white person, my reaction was, you know, there's an element of that community that looks to the police for a level of trust and security because you know what they need it in what's otherwise a dangerous neighborhood at times and if the people that look to the police have a level of distrust that's really where the problem is you know i'm i'm not worried about the criminal element and their fear of the police that doesn't bother me it's it's and that's a very small percentage of the city of Baltimore. And I looked up the statistics. 3% of the city of Baltimore is in the incarceration system. So that's 97% of the people that are not. And if they can't trust the police, that's really the breakdown. Karen. Well, I think that where that problem comes in that is that, and I have a sister who's a police lieutenant, and I have always worked with the precincts with the Christmas programs and uh, sending the kids to the uh summer programs where the police take them all summer long and they end up grooming them for the cadets and different things like that. You know, but they have, the, the precincts also have this thing called the cadets. And so they, they, they give them boot camp exercises in the morning and all that stuff. So I'm, for me, I'm, I'm on, I'm on the fence like because what my concern is that the police who have been allowed to, to, to do all this craziness for so long, you know, um, look at all blacks and all minorities as the same as this 3% you're talking about. Right. And we're not, and this is what pisses me off. And um, and what bothers me is that I'll go in the store myself. And I graduated from State University of Binghamton with a 3.7, got into graduate school and finished my master's at 24 years old at Temple University and could have went to law school, just couldn't afford it. But my whole thing is I went to Macy's a week ago with my police lieutenant sister, and we silly and we clown in the dress department, showing each other ugly outfits, and... 
these, we noticed that these people were following us for quite some time, the, the, the Macy's security. You know, and it's sad, you know, because everybody black that goes into a store is not a thief. And, and in Baltimore, I have a girlfriend who left New York to give her children a better life, and she did because at my school we don't have any kind of athletic programs, we don't have a drama program, no music, no nothing. And I keep asking my principals, I worked under four, you know, where's the money? Why don't we get the same thing that the other public schools get downtown where they're more wealthier, you know, parents? And, and it eats me like a cancer because our kids are talented and they want the same things that it's just not happening. And what I used to have to do is have contract chess in the schools, contract the American ballet to come into the urban areas, you know. Well, we're, we're going to get into. I know I've gone off. Yeah, we're, we're going to get into that. We're going to yeah, get into. My, my, okay, the base. The bottom line is this: cops need to understand that if they they are not gods, and you cannot just stop my car because of the color of my skin. You cannot bully people because of the color of their skin, and, that, and that's my major concern about the police department. And all cops are not bad. You got that small percentage too that makes all the other cops look bad. Well, and that's, and that's the reality. A, that's a very important thing. And you know what? The, the problem right now that we're seeing, and and this is a problem in our media that trickles down and into society is. We don't look at the percentage that's bad. We immediately lump everyone together. So it's, right. it's all of a sudden all cops and it's F the police and it's, you know, all black people in, in the city of Baltimore. And when they're showing the riots, you know, no one's thinking, wow, that's about 50 to 100 people. When you show it on camera the way they show it, it looks like the whole city's burning down and, and it, it wasn't even close. Listen, Troy, it, you were there. It wasn't, it wasn't even, yeah, it wasn't even close at all. I mean, it was just young kids. Like, yeah, young kids. And this is the thing is that, like, like they were saying, that, like, like we're talking to a young lady who's just sitting out there on the stoop. First of all, if you if you've ever seen the the, the show The Wire, that is what Baltimore looks like. The buildings boarded up. You talk about just the open space, the lots, the app. That is what the city of Baltimore looks like. The attitude and this, they, the people told me, and this is their words verbatim. They said, if we don't get an answer that we're comfortable with by Friday, what happened last week is nothing. They're fed up. You know, they're fed up. And this is just like you said before, Brock, this is something that's systemic because it's not just, you know, Freddie Gray, it's Trayvon Martin, it's it's Mike Brown in Ferguson, it's Eric Gardner in Staten Island. This is something that's been done. And then, yeah, it goes beyond. And you look at with Barack Obama. Since he came into office, he had to clean up Bush's mess. Fine. He created the Job Act program, which was about getting people back to work. Infrastructure, rebuilding the country. Congress said no. But you wind up doing the same thing he was talking about anyway. So what was the reason for not doing it in the first place? You know, and this is just like you say, it's a systemic thing, and it's something that has to change. Joan, go ahead, chime in. I know you're chomping at the bit. I think it's, I think it's, it really oversimplifies it to, to make it a, a police versus the thugs or police versus the one guy that they happen to, you know, kill unarmed. I think really what it comes down to is because when you think about it, before a police officer puts on his uniform in the morning, he's still just a white man. Before, you know, a thug walks out of his house, if that's what we want to call him, and, you know, he does whatever it is he does all day, he's still just a young black kid or a young black man or a black woman or whatever. So the issue is still that there's this chasm amongst the races, that the races simply, I don't care what their profession is, they just don't trust one another. 
with regards to the police, I'm going to throw something out there that I think are real simple fixes. And and maybe I'm over, oversimplifying this, and I'm going to throw them out one at a time. First of all, I think that it's a problem that you can give that kind of authority to someone 21 years old. I think mm-hmm. the age start for a cop should be higher. I think 25 is the youngest. You should be handing somebody that kind of authority uh, under that circumstance. Agreed? I could agree with that. Okay. The other thing is, I think, yeah, we're all agreed. Now, the, the other thing on that is, I think, before you become a police officer, you should have some experience in the private sector. You right. should work in the private sector. So this way, you know what? You know what it is to go out, earn, drive home, right. be part of the community. Am I correct, Juwan? So I live, in, I live in a community where it's probably 97% white. So if you take a cop here and he does some private sector work, He's only going to bump into people like him for the larger part. If he he then takes a job, let's say in Baltimore, because they actually came up here a couple years ago trying to recruit police officers for Baltimore all the way up here in upstate New York. My my next point and probably one of my most important, I think a police officer must live in the community he's policing. Yes. Because then he has an investment in that community. Yes. Yes, you should live in the city, the town you're policing, because that's going to do two things. One, now you're invested in the community. Two, you're going to get to know the people in the community. That's right. So, and, and this is part of the problem that I think that I saw as a kid growing up in Hackensack, which was, listen, it's, it's an urban area for Bergen right. County. Right. We used to see the cops walking the beat. Right. And everybody knew the cops in the town. Right. And the cops knew us. Over the years, cops have been put in police cars with guns, with computers, and basically have been policing right. and not serving the community. And that's something that, that takes away, like, like Karen was saying about with her school and, and not having athletic programs. For me, growing up, the PAL was the place where you played basketball, you boxed, you played softball, but you got a chance to know the police officers at the same time. And they got a chance to know you. Right, and they knew who you were. So, so that element is taken away. The human the human factor is gone now. And and if they, and if and when they do run into you in the street, they know you. They're like, yo, listen, come here, come here, come here. Yes. Listen, I know what it is. Yeah. I had that coming up. We had housing police. We knew the housing police, and we were scared of the police. I, one time... I saw, you know, one of these, it was a West Indian cop, black West Indian cop. He was big and bulky and in shape. You know, it wasn't nobody two feet tall. But the thing is, you know, you could not ride your bicycle on the project grounds. And I didn't see him that particular day. And I was riding my bike like a bat out of hell. He saw me. Get off the bike. And I decided at 12 years old that I didn't, I was scared of him. So I rode away from him and he chased me and threw the nightstick at my bike. And I just kept my bike upstairs for about another month so that I wouldn't, so that he wouldn't run to me. And when he caught me a month later, he says, yeah, you think I forgot that you ran away on your bike when I told you to get off. But the thing is, there was that community, and you knew the cops, and you knew right. what to do, and you knew how to behave. That's all gone. Bloomberg came in and, and took the rights of parents out of their hands and said, you can't beat your kid or you get locked up. When they took away all those parent, parental rights and they, and they took away the, uh, the, 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 the programs that were in the, in the neighborhood, they took all that out and they put it downtown, I saw the change. I think also nobody's addressing that crack rage in the 80s. Well, I think another thing that would be important, I think another thing that would be important to add is we need 
more consistent psychological and mental evaluations for police officers. If you say you have a job where every day your life is at risk and you're under this constant and pressure because of that threat, then why aren't we checking on their mental state every six months? You know, why aren't we giving them psychological evals maybe every nine months, maybe every year, maybe every 15 yeah. months? There needs to be something in place that we can consistently check on them because they leave the precinct every day with the ability to create deadly force. The other thing to that that I want to add as part of my list, I honestly believe a police officer should not be given a weapon for the first two years of his duty because I think a police officer should learn how to use skills other than violence, other than the threat of deadly force. Now listen, he can have his taser, he can have his nightstick to protect himself, but I think I want to see a police officer learn how to use his voice, how to use diplomacy in right. certain situations. Now, I'm not going to send that officer to a shootout. I'm not <laughs> going to put not, him in a... Right. right. I'm right, just right. talking about a police officer on the street patrolling. Right. There's a problem with that, though. I mean, the problem with that would be you would need a lot more cops then. Because otherwise, you could have a cop and... I mean, he, I mean, they don't always predict the situations that they find themselves in. So you can't have a cop and he just not have a weapon. Or he only has a taser, and he ends up in a gunfight that he didn't predict. But hold on a second, Juan. We have that. We have that in London. What about a senior cop? What, what about a seasoned cop with a young cop? A year or so, and we be going, "Wow, there's a lot of dead rookie cops." No, but you, you're also missing a point here. What I'm talking about is this is a cop on a beat on the street. When there's a 911 call, I'm not saying send an unarmed cop to that 911 call. I'm saying. Let a police officer, when he gets his first two years in, be without a weapon to learn the community, learn the ropes, patrol in a different manner. Now, when there's a 911 call off, there's a situation that he cannot respond to. Again, that will give him the ability to radio for backup and do something else to pause as opposed to quickly pull out a weapon. I'm thinking maybe have these young rookie cops be assigned to a seasoned cop. What if he what if he walks into a situation all what if he walks into a situation already in progress? Well, see, that's the other problem that we have to address in this country because and now we're going to get into the the urbanization issues because you know, part of the problem with the city of Baltimore is the government's issue. We're losing a war on drugs that we can apparently not control whatsoever. You want to want to cry, we have to lay off some astronomical amount of prison guards, COs, judges, defense attorneys, prosecuting attorneys, uh, rehab centers. You win the war on drugs, the unemployment rate skyrockets because that many people go out of work the next day. Well, see, but this is part of the issue. See, what we do is we we put we put the onus right now and we put the blame on police officers. But the truth of the matter is the war on the war on the gun situation is not being won because of the gun lobby is too powerful. Right. The, the, with, the, with regards to the drug issue, we have three states that have legalized marijuana and yet we have 47 states that don't. Where do you think everyone's getting their marijuana from? You know, the funny thing is, Vince, you say that, but those three states, they are no longer broke. Right. Those three states have made a mountain load of money. Yeah, millions of dollars. They're they're in the they're not they're they're in the black. They're not in the red. They're making money, so it does prove that something like that would work. Right? Legalize drugs. Yeah, control it. it. 
control. You did it with alcohol. You you you, to, you controlled it. You taxed it. Now, see, here's my issue with that. Here's my issue with that. I've never in my life even attempted to try marijuana. I've never experimented with marijuana. I've never smoked marijuana once. If I move to Colorado tomorrow, where marijuana is legal, I'm still not going to smoke it. Individual accountability in the war on drugs matters, and it matters a lot. Absolutely. Listen, I've never taken a drug. I've never taken a drug in my life, Jawan. You want to light up crack? And you want to light up, you know, marijuana? You want to shoot heroin? You want to do meth? That's on you. My concern is this: that all three years, even when the crack epidemic started, these young kids were going out there selling it. These guys got felonies. They were teenagers, and now they're adults who want to be productive citizens, but they got this felony over their head. So you got a large population of minority men who can't get decent jobs because they got a felony from way back when. And this is where I think a lot of the problems come in with the frustration because they're either only able to work at McDonald's or these minimum wage jobs because they can't get a fireman job or police job or a transit job or bus driver job because back then when they were locking all these young boys up on felonies for selling crack, now we got this whole population of young guys in jail who are now older guys, and you got this large population of black men in jail. And then they come out and they can't, they can't keep up with society because they can't afford anything, and it's government. And they blame, so what the government do? They throw it on the cops. So look, beat up the cops and let the black on black crime continue. And basically, it has to start from government putting money into these communities where, and not the people in the communities. What happened was, let me tell you, going back a little bit, in the 60s and 70s, I was much younger. They had the young lords, and they had the Black Panthers, and they were feeding the community, and then they made the Black Panthers out to be the bad guys and the young lords were doing all this. But they really wanted to upgrade their communities. And when they fought and had the riots, all of a sudden the jobs came, the uh, affirmative action and EOP, and, and blacks were allowed to go to college and get tuition. And then all that was stripped. All that was stripped. The character ever came in and all that was stripped. And what happens is now these people are tired. They're going to start rioting and the government's going to have no choice but to start putting some money in these communities to calm all this craziness down because people are truly tired. And it's not just black people. There's white people are tired, Jewish people. Women are tired. Gays are tired. They're tired of always being this 1% being beat on and, 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 and Big Brother watching you. It's, people are tired. So, and, and this black-on-black -black crime thing, you know what? We have to uplift our community too, but you can't uplift a community if you don't have any fun funding in the community to do these things and mentor these programs and mentor these boys so that they don't be another generation of men in jail. See, you and know? now so that, that kind of brings me to a point that me and Jawan were going off on a little bit this week, mm -hmm. which was the rioting. Right. And, and that's where the rioting to me is very counterproductive because right. when that rioting happens, when you start burning businesses down, the private sector and the private companies are never going to come back. Right, right. And and the private companies that may have come in are certainly not going to come in now. So what's left? What's left is government, which hasn't been helping the problem at all. Listen, Wells Fargo was doing all that predatory lending in Baltimore right, right. like they did in Chicago, like they did in L.A., like they've done in Miami, right, like right. they've done in New York, right. like they've done in Detroit. And what happens? Everyone defaults on the loans. You have a bunch of empty buildings. Where is the government stepping in? You know where they stepped in? They bailed, bailed everybody, everybody out. out. Right, right. They, they bailed the banks out. They bailed the banks out. But you, and, and right. the, the thing is, is that, you know what, this, this is the, the words of the people who live in Baltimore themselves. They said, do you know what we, what we're famous for? I was like, well, I know y'all crabs are, are out of this world. He said, we know, we know, and, and, and we laughed, but he said, no, we're known for dope and crabs. Dope and crabs. Dope and crabs. That's what the people of Baltimore, 
And I want to focus on Baltimore, even though this is a, a, a worldwide thing. But let's focus on this particular right, this city right here right because now. this is what's going on. These people there, and this is a generational thing, as I said. The same thing happened back in 68. You know, it was the same exact situation. So this is something that's – this it's isn't anything new. No. It's nothing new. It's the same thing. It's just new players involved. And so until – America, you know what the funny thing is? People have to be be realistic, and and let's get straight to the point. America was raised and built on basically stealing. You sold, quote unquote, you stole this country from the American Indian, the Native American. Look at what's happened. You know, um, everybody thought that the world was flat. So Christopher Columbus, get out of here, take the rapists and the thugs, all, all the trash in Europe. We're going to get rid of it because it's not going to wind up anywhere. And we created this country, home of the free, land of the brave. As a man who served this country in the military, I'm hurt and offended because growing up there were rules, and I don't know if Jawan, if you could agree with me on this, there were certain types of rules I had to have set in my mind whenever the police were around. If the police would have stopped me, I was going to put my hands automatic, automatically up in the air and scream where my wallet was at. Because if a cop didn't hear what you said, they thought you were reaching for a knife or a gun. So it's little things that we have been in, embedded in our psyche just because this is how you survive, dealing with the authority figure. But like you said, the authority figure is supposed to be there to serve and protect, not maim and kill, you know? You know, and, and this is another problem I have, you know, wh- when we start to focus, and this is the government yeah. shifting focus. And I, I want to read something just to give some background and some statistics on, on the truth. And this is taken from the, the Tampa Bay Times today. Um, and the, the author of the article is Steve Contorno. And Steve Contorno was talking about the statistics because all I've seen for the last week and every time there's a police shooting is people talk about statistics and how many black people being shot versus right. white people. People seem to want to make this a black white thing. Right. And it's really not. It's really not. It it's isn't. not. It, isn't. it really isn't. So right. here's, here's some of the things that, and when people start talking about statistics, in 2013, the latest year on record, there were 458 justifiable homicides involving a firearm. The previous high was in 1994 when 460 were reported. So you would say, okay, wait a minute. We went a 20-year period where the numbers were low. Okay, then I read on. There are significant holes in the FBI data that cast doubts on whether real conclusions can be drawn from these statistics. Mm -hmm. There is no mandate that local law enforcement agencies report officer-involved shootings to the FBI. It's a voluntary system. So you don't have to report the shootings. (laughs) The consensus among experts is that these data are unsatisfactory, leaving questions about the number of people shot and killed by police in any year and the trends in that number over a period of time. The, The article continues... No, we don't know what agencies are coming in and out and reporting how many are accurately reporting. So we don't know which cities are reporting and the accuracies of what they're reporting. So we may not be getting the numbers from L.A. We may not be getting the numbers from Chicago. For all we know, we're getting the numbers of some small community that doesn't have this problem. And, and, And here is the final ruling on it. The moral of the story is... Um, the, the, the person who was on Fox quoting this uh, was quoting a USA Today analysis based on FBI statistics. And although that seems to be a good resource, 
when you dug deeper, none of the information out there is reliable. So we don't know how many black men are being <laughs> shot, how many white men are being shot. We don't know how many people are being shot. shot. Period, right. So all of the information we're getting with regards to police shootings and statistics are half true at best. Right. Now, when you take that and you look at the amount of people being killed, and this is where the media plays in, you look at the numbers and we listen – one is too many. Right. I, let's get that out there. I'm not right. trying to justify numbers. And please, don't think I'm justifying numbers. But here's some statistics that will scare you in another industry. The Institute of Medicine in 1999 released that 98,000 people per year die as a result of medical malpractice. Okay. The Inspector General for Health and Human Services in 2010 11 years later, says 180,000 people die as a result of medical malpractice. The Journal of Patient Safety in 2015 estimates between 210 and 440,000 people will die in America as a result of failed care in a medical facility. That number is climbing astronomically. No one is protesting outside hospitals because right. of the health insurance right, lobby. Right. Let me give you another scary statistic, especially for Karen. 3% to 6% of students in public schools will be sexually assaulted by a teacher before they graduate high school. I want you to think about that. If you've got 100 kids in a class... Three to six of those kids will be sexually assaulted by a public school teacher before they graduate high school. When you take the number, hold on, hold on, let me finish this because this is going to get to my point. When you take the number of public school kids that fall into that three to six percent range, I'm not talking about nationally, just the kids that are going to be sexually assaulted, that number almost doubles the amount of kids that are enrolled in Catholic schools. But what do we see in the news? We see priests touching, touching kids. kids. Right. Why? Because that's the sexy story. So what do we have right now? The sexy story is the word thug is the new N-word. Cops are killing black men. And I'm not saying it's not happening. It's, right, we're seeing right. evidence. Right. But I'm telling people out there, please be careful as to what you're being roped into. The government knows how to mess with numbers, hide numbers, not give you numbers to justify Everything. what they want right. you to know and believe. Right. And, and the only way you're going to really know is by educating yourself, yeah. reading, becoming informed. Listen, YouTube is great, kids. Yeah, you know, but watching videos is great. You gotta read. read. Yeah, and that's the thing, Vince. Like I had, that's the reason why my, a friend of mine, uh, it's a friend of mine named Black. Uh, he has a, a website called BlackDiaries.org. He's a military bro brother of mine named Ty Nero, and I went down there with him, and he said, he said, Yo, Troy, we need to see what it is that these people are going through. And only thing I'm gonna say is this. The, the human condition that we live in, it's a human condition. And the thing about conditions, conditions can be changed. They can Absolutely. be improved. They can they can either become better or they can become worse. And right now, it seems like there's a certain element of society that is loving the negativity that Love is it. transpiring right now at this moment. Love it. They're loving it right now. 
like, 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 listen, like Vince said, in the school systems with the sex abuse that's going on with the children, right. they sweep that under the rug. They sweep the violence in the schools under the rug. When I present workshops to parents and I give out 250 flyers and I only get 25 parents sitting down and I'm buying $40 worth of food to try to give you free books and explain to you about special education and your rights as a parent and the disabilities your children may have and they're reading three grades below. What are, you, what are your concerns that they're in the fifth grade and they're reading three grades below and they're taking these state tests that are evened out for everybody. The state test says you're supposed to be reading at this level and the test is not accommodating your kid who's reading K-1 and so, and then I tell, and I give these workshops on parents, like, look out for the signs of your child if they're coming home upset. Ask them about their teacher. Ask them what went on in the school. Did so, did I have my sister go and do workshops on good feelings, bad feelings when I was, when she was a police, when a youth officer. And then by the time she got promoted to sergeant, I didn't have her around anymore to go and give these kind of workshops to parents and but kids. E- but even as school teachers, let's be honest, it used to be a situation where, you know what, you had control of the classroom. Now the kids have control of the classroom. Yes, yes, and when a parent yes. gets called in, they immediately take the side of their and child. And they cuss the teachers out and they cuss me out. And, right. and the principal is too scared to even defend us. Yes, that you're absolutely right. You are so absolutely right. And then the sad part to all of that is that I'm told not to call 911 when a parent is in my face looking like you want to do something. Back in the day, my principal who retired and moved to Texas, he was from Fort Apache, he grew up in Fort Apache, he would say, Ms. Shockins, go call the police. You know, or he would tell the parent, get out to school, you're not going to curse in school, you're not going to talk to my teacher that way. Matter of fact, meet your kid in the schoolyard. As a matter of fact, go find your, get a safety transfer and move your kid to another school. So he protected his teachers. But you got these young teachers that are coming from the Midwest, they're babies, 21, 22. They are actually coming from Wall Street. They lost their jobs in the Wall Street market and they've taken a couple of classes to become teachers. They have no clue. They call it Teach America. They have no clue or no connection to the diversity or the understanding of a different culture. And so, so one more thing. What I want to say is that as a social worker, I try to let these kids know about felonies, even from third grade, that you have to live a certain kind of way, become productive citizens, and if you don't, the world doesn't reward bad behavior. If you go out there and disrespect a cop, you're going to get hurt. If you go out there and do something wrong, you're going to get arrested. Then you got these teachers from the Midwest, poor old black child, all they need is love, and they're rewarding the bad behavior. The teachers are getting cussed out by these kids, and at the end of the day, you can go into a toy box and pick a toy. I'm looking at the teacher saying, you're going against what I'm teaching them, because now they believe that they can act the fool and get a get a reward and I'm teaching them that you you can't reward bad behavior so I for the past almost, listen, I was ready to go, like, look, it was time for me to go and somebody else, you know, God knows I had to do the best I can for somebody else to be strong and young and do what I used to try to do. But it's it's crazy. Um, just, you know, to get to a point with Troy, if yeah, I can. Sure, sure. Um, and, and I want to bring, because I know you do a lot of mentoring. Yeah. You know, it, it takes a community mm-hmm. to be involved. Right. And part of what we're talking about here is the fact that we have this problem with the community right. and when you when you have that problem within the community uh-huh. and you have kids that maybe don't have a good home life and even religion and i know people are very anti-religion right now this is right, a real right. new thing that we have in this country everyone's against religion and i look at religion forget about whether it's you know what religion mm-hmm. it's communal right when you don't have that sense of community young people wind up being communal the only way they can and where do they wind up in gangs on the street right it, it's you know it's the, the funny thing is is that growing up like and you've met my father like my parents split when i was 17 so 
so yeah right for a while see that's sad here it is a black woman that's a teacher said wow you had them together for a while one thing i'm grateful for and thankful about i did have my father so there was a guy there in the house that i could talk to even if he if he, he couldn't stand me and i couldn't stand him but he was there you know if it wasn't him i had my uncles my grandfather basketball coach even if even guys in the neighborhood that were older who already had been out there in the street and they knew what was right and what was wrong. But, but the community was more communal. That's my point, right? That's the point. The community, it was somebody there within it and it was like the respect factor was, okay, I know who your mother is. I know who your father is. When yeah. I see him, I'm going to let him know what you did. It's not like that We're anymore. We're not communal anymore. No. We've, we've, we hide in our homes. Yes. It's too hard now. Our single parents, where it wasn't that way when probably Troy was a kid, when I was a kid, when I was a kid, I didn't need to leave the house, and I couldn't leave the house with $700 worth of stuff on And parents feel like they are, they're obligated to provide that. So the kid needs $450 Beats headphones. The kid needs $175 True Religion jeans. The kid needs $200 Michael Jordan sneakers. The kid needs a $400 iPhone. So these single parents are going out, and they're still trying to keep up with the Joneses, and that doesn't work. When I grew up, we had one TV. It was in the living room. There wasn't a TV in every room in the house. I couldn't go to my mother. I remember going to my mother asking for wild style Adidas because one had a pair on. And they were like $40. And my mother act like I asked her for a million dollars. Listen, I, I grew up, I got hand-me-downs. When I grew up and found out that steak didn't cost $100, I couldn't understand my mother anymore. <laughs> like, you told me. Steak was too expensive for me and my siblings to eat while you and my father ate it. I couldn't find out it's really like ten dollars. We, we got to wrap this up because we're running time on the studio. Uh, I want to give everybody a last word. Let's start with Karen. We'll walk our, work our way around. Ladies first. Karen, I mean, listen, everything that we've seen in the media, everything we've seen on the news, I think we all agree that there's a bigger problem here. Police are an issue, yes, but there's there's something else. So, I mean, tell me right now, what is your feeling and how do we head in the right direction at this point? Granted, the police have issues and concerns and they need to be retrained, retaught, and and, and you need some more, you need, you need uh, uh, and, and the communities need to be more strong and more communal. But I believe that we have to start putting, I mean, we have to start Making all these politicians and putting them on the on the on the soapbox, they have to do their job. Where are all these politicians in that in these same communities? Where are you? Don't don't pop up when one kid is shot. You know, all of a sudden Sharpton and all them old old scout. You know, I'm not going to go into that. But anyhow, right? I'm not going to do that. But you know what? But but don't pop up when there's just when you you can be live on live on TV. It needs to be something consistently going on all the doggone time. All these politicians that we vote in. Where are you guys? Where are they? Be visible every yes, day. Yes, all the time. And show us what you're doing with the money. I mean, where, why are these communities Accountability. not Accountability. You know, the elderly, they burned down CVS. Let's go back a little bit. You know, it's sad because you need prescriptions. The elderly need prescriptions. People don't have cars. Why would you burn down something? I know that it wasn't the people who want the help in the community, who want that CVS. And like you said, a small percentage. But it has to go up to government. I'm sorry. It has to go with the politicians. Everybody's sitting back comfortable. And it's like, I don't live in that neighborhood. I ain't got to worry about it. But we voted you in. Then we need to start voting them out. You know, we need to start saying, you're not doing your job. Vote them out. 
You know, and it's, it's about it's about voting also. I agree with you 100%. Troy, I want to look at you now, and I want to ask you, mm-hmm. as a father, mm-hmm. you have a, a young daughter. What do you tell your daughter when she's old enough with regards to the possibilities? How do you talk about what's going on in society now? How do you give her hope? I actually I have I have two. My oldest is 13 and my youngest is 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 18 months. I um I really don't know. See that All I can say all I can say right. all I can say to my girls and also I have a stepson and he's somebody he he's 10. So he's somebody that I worry about also. And and what I tell to the kids all at the same time, which is be aware of what you do. Understand that everything that you do, you're going to be judged by it. You have to be held accountable. Every action causes a reaction. You know, be aware. You know, it's cool to, to laugh at, at your video games and play your stuff online. It's cool. But you have to understand that this society that we live in and that this world we live in, it's lived in by people. You know, the beautiful thing about America, and it's just people in general, is that we're all different hues. We're all different colors. We're all different shades. But when you break it down, we're all the same. We're beings, beings of a human nature. We have to deal with one another. Because if not, then society wouldn't be as beautiful as it is. You wouldn't have all these different things. And we as a people got to be more strong about it. And that's what's important. All right, Jawan, ready? I'm going to give you a last word. I mean, you've, you've been very outspoken on social media. You've been talking about this. Right now, tell me, you know, if you had to send a message to the public at large, what would it be? I think the message that I send is that Loyalty is is big, but integrity is huge. So both of those things will help develop trust on both sides. If both parties, if both sides, if all sides hold each other to the higher standards of integrity first. Don't sell crack to my brother. Don't let someone sell crack to my brother. Don't watch a fight and videotape it. Break the fight up. Don't allow your brethren that's wearing a suit and a badge be on somebody when you know it's immoral, when you know it's wrong. I remember soldiers back in Vietnam, you know, three of them were like, hey, let's rape this girl. Two of the other soldiers would say, hey, we're not going to let this happen. We need cops to step up when they see things like that happening. When they see, you know, two other cops jumping on a guy that's already subdued, they need to step up and say, hey, he's subdued. Enough is enough. Thank you, Juwan. Listen, I'm going to wrap up um, my point. Um, I want to thank everyone for being here. Troy Cannonier, find him on Facebook. Juwan Nelson, um, I want to thank everybody for joining me. Uh, I'm going to wrap up by saying Karen Shockness, find her as well, Facebook, Twitter, and um, Juwan Nelson, Facebook, Twitter as well. The point I would like to end on is going back to the beginning when I started this podcast, and that is the point that, you know, this is not a debate. We shouldn't be arguing with one another about the final outcome. You know, I just gave a speech to the Bergen County Bar Association, and one of the things I said in that speech, the word I hate most when used with lawyers is adversary. You know, we're not adversaries. We are advocates for our clients' rights. And just because you're advocating for someone's rights, it doesn't mean you are always the one who is right. You know, there's always a common ground somewhere in the middle, somewhere between your position and the other position. There's a middle ground there that's the meeting place. And usually 
when there's a good outcome, it's somewhere in that middle. It's this idea and this notion of winning that is creating the problem in this country. It's this divisiveness. It's this notion of sides, that you're either on one side or the other side. You know what? There really isn't this notion of sides that should exist in our society. You know, yeah, maybe there is a side, but it's the side we can all agree on, which is the one in the middle. So I think that's the most important thing is finding that middle ground. And, you know, again, people told me, what's the point of this podcast been? Are you, you know, are you expecting to win? You know what? We're already losing. We can only win at this point. So yes, I do expect to win. And part of the way we do win is by drowning out the negative voices. Start drowning out the, the voices of, you know what? I don't want to hear you, you know, putting up Facebook posts. I don't want to read your Facebook post about your opinion. You know what? I'm going to start unfriending people or people are unfriending me because of my opinion. Where are we in this culture, in this society where we can't disagree, learn to hear one another and then kind of meet somewhere in the middle? Listen, sometimes you don't always meet in the middle. Sometimes there's not always that middle ground. And listen, there are certain situations that are more obvious than others that there's been an issue. You know, there are certain murder situations one way or another where it's clear cut. And and listen, somebody did something wrong. But for the most part in our society, when it comes to issues of a human nature, of human relationships, and this is the most important thing because that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about human relationships. Usually there's a common ground. And that common ground is that place where we meet in the middle and we just say, yes, you know what? Maybe I don't agree with you, but I understand now. Start to develop that understanding. And the only way to do it is to speak up. So many people on social media, you know, God, I, I had someone, I, you know, tell me to shut the F up because I voiced an opinion. No, you're not going to bully me. I'm not going to shut up. That's why I'm doing this podcast. Don't let people bully you about your opinion. Look at what I, we just did here. Four of us came together and put together this great discussion. And there was no arguing. There was no yelling over one another. We all got out our points. We all listened. You don't have to live in fear. Be heard. Be the positive voice of change. That's the only way this is going to get better. Uh, thank you, everybody, for listening to the podcast. Thank you for my four guests for coming on. Again, I'm trying to do stuff with interviews and get other points of view and other perspectives. Hopefully, this is making a difference. Hopefully, this will start a conversation out there. And that's what it's about. A conversation. It's not an argument. It's not a debate, people. Listen to each other. Respect one another. Hear what the other person has to say. And even if you disagree, at least understand why. Thank you for listening. Find me on Twitter, Vince August. Facebook, Vince August. Instagram, Vince August. Find me everywhere as Vince August. Um, Everybody, I'll catch you in the next podcast. Thank you.